Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until six and I don't know whether to thank Chris or not, but I will anyway. Today, Uniting Church retired Minister Robert Stringer will be talking about his work in the Solomon Islands and with Aboriginal communities in Australia. And he was there at Nookumbar back when they had the land rights issues. And next week, he'll be talking about his visit to West Papua. Looking at the interim port of the Royal Commission in South Australia into the nuclear industry, I'll have Associate Professor Mark Diesendorf talking about that and he's from the Interdisciplinary Studies Unit at the University of New South Wales. A visit to Malaysia by young socialist activist Sarah Hathaway was one of those. An update on the situation in Venezuela with Jim McElroy and perhaps the final act in Syria with Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus and Mr Kevin Healy will be back next week. The people of West Papua have been struggling for self-determination for over half a century. But the Indonesian-controlled province remains a killing field under military rule. The region, which has some of the world's largest copper and gold mines and riches in timber and fisheries, has been described as the wealthiest real estate in the world. And there lies the problem, control of those resources. Resources which belong to Papuans who see little benefit, instead repression and torture, death for those who dare to oppose the genocide of their people. Tourists are allowed into West Papua, but activists and journalists are not welcome. One such activist who travelled there recently was retired Uniting Church Minister Robert Stringer. Robert worked for a number of years in the Solomon Islands, so is familiar with their Melanesian culture, but also the Australian Aboriginal culture, having worked in several states with communities and was part of roadblocks for Aboriginal land rights at Nukumbar in Western Australia. I began with Robert talking about growing up in New Zealand. Typical teenager. When I was at high school, the only thing I really wanted to do was to... Uh, a, a minister of a church and I didn't even really know what they did I mean I knew they preached on Sunday but I wouldn't know what they did other times but uh, I was told you know go to university and do what you'd normally do and then you can think about it so when I was 21 I started training for ministry and then uh, after three years training and three years in a rural parish known as the Gumboot Parson it was a dairy farming area I went overseas to the Solomon Islands for six years in the early 70s. That was before independence? Yes, uh, 77 was independence. So. And what was that period of your life like? Well, that was life transforming. Uh, when you go and live as a minority in another culture, uh, it's just a fantastic ex- expanding experience. The, the motif I look for that, uh, I have for that is it's like living in front of a huge mirror not that you're looking at yourself, but you, you, you can see yourself as being different and that you're, you know, the culture you grew up in and the culture you're living in are quite different. And so you need to be aware of 
lots of things. I found myself being the cultural interpreter. So I was having to look at my culture, I was having to look at the culture in which I was living, and then I was having to look at the Bible and all its cultures. And so I was constantly you know, moving between all those different cultures. And so how do you tell people in a culture that's never seen sheep that you know, Jesus was the Lamb of God? Or even more difficult, how do you interpret the parable of the prodigal son where feeding pigs is the lowest thing you can do in Jewish culture, which, but in Melanesian culture is the highest of the high because pigs are more important than baby girls you know, in that culture. So you, know, you really have to uh, be aware uh, in interpreting and, and so that you get the meaning out of uh, stories. Uh, and I see the Bible as a continuous collection of narrative theology. And what were the main things that you learnt from that Melanesian culture? I learnt uh, one of the first things is that uh, when you ask questions in that culture, you never get a what I would call a straight answer. You get the answer that they think you want to hear because keeping relationships is more important than telling you what they think. So you're constantly having to check out the answers you were given by either asking further questions or making observations uh, so that you, know, you really understood what was happening in the culture. Certainly understood major things, uh, differences like family structure, marriage, customs, leadership styles, and then on top of all that cultural stuff to learn the development issues, you know, what it means to develop in a country that's basically... Uh, uh, slash and burn, um, subsistence agriculture, what it means to slowly emerge to gain an economy so you can at least get the basics of food and utensils and cloth and things like that. And then also, if you can afford it, to get things like outboard motors and canoes and things that help with travel. So, you know, all those things were clear. And then just watching politicians in an emerging country uh, grapple with things like the emergence of trade unions. And unfortunately, when you look at the Solomons, the, the breakdown of law and order, you know, that's the problem with the Solomons. When you now have corrupt politicians, uh, you have guns in the community, you have criminals, it's not a very good mix, and that leads to a failed state. It wasn't like that while you were there. No, it wasn't like that when I was there because you were at a more emerging stage as you saw the politicians take over. But, you know, they didn't handle the first trade union demonstration very well. They used tear gas and things like that. But then that was when they still had uh, British rule and, uh, you know, the, the establishment didn't like that. But, uh, you know, that was the kind of thing that we had in those days. What do you believe was, was the impact of colonisation on their culture? Well, it brought some development and it put in good structures. There's a reasonable health system, you know, an appropriate health system, an appropriate education system, although it was more aimed at trying to find elites and educate them. And the church had probably as much of a role as the state in the early days. In fact, the church had a greater role. Uh, especially the Methodist Church, which was in the Western Solomons, where the missionary Goldie, uh, they used to say the three G's that uh, ruled the Western Solomons was Goldie, Golding, and the government in that order. 
Now, Goldie, for example, had a radio set in the days before even ships had radios. So he knew what the price of copra was in Australia when the ship's captain didn't know. So he knew whether to sell his copra at that price or weight or whatever. So he was, in, uh, you know, Goldie was encouraging uh, the people to grow small plantations, harvest copra. So, you know, the church had a very high impact, but the government was very sparse on the ground in those days. And the church set up the initial health and uh, education, uh, which they took over uh, more and more and certainly took over the schools in the 70s when I was there. Was the mining happening while you were there? Not really. Yeah, that was, was to come later. That was to come later, yes. What about their connection with the, the North Solomon, the Bougainville Island? Well, when we first went there, there was quite a lot of connection because some of our church institutions were in Bougainville and we were sending girls to Kahili uh, Girls School and there was quite a bit of travel that could come through. But slowly that became more and more tight the the border control and those things had to be let go and the Solomons had to be more independent church-wise from those in Bougainville but there was still a lot of toing and froing I mean the top of choice or where I lived first you could see Bougainville it was that close and the choice or people are much more closely related ethnically to those on Bougainville and really Bougainville should be part of the Solomons if you look at it geographically well it is the North Solomons That's isn't right. it yes. yeah what do you believe your years there taught you? It taught me culture, most of all. To be able to live in more than one culture and to know what kind of questions to ask, what kind of observations to meet. And uh, the other thing is that when I went back to university in the 90s and did anthropology, well, I had it all in my experience and all I needed was a bit of a framework. And so I just found that a piece of cake, you know, going back and studying anthropology after you lived in a in another country for six years was, was fantastic. But a lot happened before you actually went back to university. Where did you go next? Well, from the Solomons, which I left end of 77, early 78, I went back briefly to New Zealand. I became a house husband for a year because both my wife and I, when we went back uh, then, we said whoever gets the job first is the breadwinner and the other helps look after children because they were five and seven at that stage. And then at the end of 78, I was appointed as the uh, Synod Consultant for uh, Social Justice, Cross-Cultural Mission, uh, the development of uh, migrant congregations and the development of the Aboriginal Church. And I did that for nine years. Where was this? This is in Perth in, right. in Western Australia. And you ended up in Nukumba? Yeah, well, part of my very early on, in fact, uh, was monitoring the the clash of culture and, and values between the West Australian government and Sir Charles Court, mining at any price, and the Nukumbar Aboriginal people who had moved from being fringe dwellers at Fitzroy Crossing to having their own station and putting their life back together and regaining traditional culture and relationship to the land. And then you had Amex as a company coming in and prospecting for oil and then deciding to drill. And the place they chose was Pea Hill, which was one of those really complex sacred sites on the song lines up there. And so you had this clash between the state government that says, if we say you can drill, you can drill. And the people 
having to use all they could in terms of legislation, and they were using the Aboriginal Heritage List, which gave some vestige of protection for sacred sites, and it was identified clearly as a, a site that needed to be protected. And so they were protesting, and the government say, no, we, we're going to drill for that. And after a lot of clashes, there was a confrontation uh, where they sent up a convoy of 60 mining trucks with all their drilling equipment, and some of us clergy, five of us, got up there before that and sat on the road with the people and got arrested and put in jail for a day. But we spent 10 days in court proving that the government was wrong. The government, which gazetted the road into... Newcombar Station is a public road and never surveyed it, so they couldn't prove that where we sat on the road was part of the line marked brown on a map. <laughs> so, you know, that, their case fell to pieces. And then they also accused me of uh, resisting arrest, and I proved that passive resistance does not constitute resisting arrest. And so I got off on that. So the government had to pay $3,000 for my lawyer and myself to defend those cases. What did you learn from this culture then? You've gone from a culture in Melanesia to an Aboriginal culture. In order to catch up on what I needed there, I went back to I went to uh, West Australian University and did Aboriginal anthropology under Catherine and Ron Burnt. Uh, so that helped me to get a framework at that stage. And then my constant interaction with uh, the Nukumbar community and other communities in Western Australia meant that I was able to you know, get a feel for that much older culture of hunters and gatherers and understand the, the wonderful spirituality and relationship to land and, and all those uh, things that we know are important to Aboriginal culture. For those who don't know about Nukumbar, what was the outcome? The outcome was they went and drilled for oil and didn't find any and we got charged and we got off on all the charges. But the prize wasn't Nukumbar. The prize was Argyle. Because what uh, Sir Charles Corton wanted to do was to defuse any court cases or uh, sacred site things on Argyle because where the diamond mine is is a Barramundi dreaming site. It's the mine is, and, and that, that's a range. But then what happened there was that the people from Turkey Creek who were the custodians of that place did a deal with the mining company and said, well, for a few Toyotas and for, I think it was something like $300,000 a year, we will not push any claim to that site. It's a form of land rights. And there was a bit of divide and rule in there, was there? Not that I know of. It was a fairly small community, and I think they willingly capitulated. There wasn't any ongoing resistance that I know of. But it was it was land rights because the mining company negotiated with the traditional owners and came to an agreement. This really made Sir Charles very angry because here's him trying to say, you know, that all this sacred site stuff is nonsense. And yet the mining company was willing to do that. So I think he was rather angry with the mining company, but that's the reality. And did he go on in his premiership to try other deals like this over Aboriginal land? I'd have a difficulty trying to think back. I know that there were other cases, but I can't think of any other major confrontations. I mean, Nukumbar was the test case and very high profile at that. A lot of people went from other states to that, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, there were clergy from other states. We were the only Europeans accompanying the Aboriginal people at that point. And, And what I had done was alerted 
the other states to this possibility that there would be a confrontation. I didn't know what form it would take, but they were ready. When we knew the convoy, which left in secrecy, it had about a week to get up there. We were able to negotiate with the community and have their permission to be there, and we were able to negotiate with the eastern states to have people from our head office in Sydney, from the Council of Churches, from the Anglican Church there at the time to witness what was going to happen. And we decided that we would sleep on the road with the people and we ended up in the morning being arrested. I imagine the watch house wouldn't have been too comfortable. It was very gentle, really. <laughs> you know, It was a typical, um, fairly modern police station and it was obviously used to accommodating quite a lot of people. So you weren't put in small cells. It was a large cell. You were given a pie for lunch. And what they really did was to keep us away from the media until the evening. And then they put us before a magistrate. All the other clergy pleaded guilty because, I mean, sitting on the road was only a $5 fine, I think it was. But I wasn't going to pay that because I had the other charge. That was just an obstructing traffic charge. But then resisting arrest is actually a criminal charge. So I wasn't going to plead guilty to that. So I said, OK, I'll come back. (laughs) Did you stay in Western Australia after that? Yeah, I stayed after I'd finished that I went back into a parish in uh, Girouin where there was a mainly housing commission area and I stayed there for three years and then I decided I had to either complete the degree or let it go so I decided to go back to Murdoch University and finish my degree and, and I did it in sociology, anthropology and politics. And from there? And from there, I was asked to be the National Director for Social Justice in Sydney with our head office. And there we did a lot of work, particularly, for example, uh, confronting CRA and their mine at Octeti. We critiqued them and they were a bit angry. So we made our way to Port Moresby and they flew us out to the mine and showed us what they were doing to try and mitigate what had happened there. I wrote a 40-page, very critical thing. And then in the end, they quit it, put their shares in a trust for the local people, but the damage was done. Can you you describe that place? Well, Loch Teddy is high in the mountains. It was a gold copper mine. The gold was mainly on top. You harvested the gold to build your plant, and then the rest of the mine was mining the mountain of copper. And then uh, because they couldn't build a tailings dam in the mountains, which were limestone country, very fast rivers, very steep, they couldn't safely build a tailings dam. And so what happened there was Bougainville was in crisis, so they had lost their overseas income. So Octeti was very important. So they came to an agreement uh, with the government that you just threw it down the river. So it comes rushing down, and then as soon as it hit the flatland, it just spread out over the forest. And then the copper that was still in the tailings poisoned the river from there, the 100,000 kilometres all the way down the Fly River to the coast. It was tragic for all the people involved. And that's Uniting Church, retired Uniting Church Minister Robert Stringer, talking about some of the activism and the work that he did in his earlier years. We'll finish the interview next week with Octeti and then move on to his visit to West Papua. 
You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. The time now is coming up to 19 minutes past four o'clock. I'm Jermaine Greer and you're listening to 3CR. Treaty Now. As expected, the Interim Royal Commission into the Nuclear Fuel Cycle has found that South Australia could benefit from further developing the state's role in the nuclear fuel cycle and that the likely development of a storage and disposal facility of used nuclear fuel in South Australia could be operational in the late 2020s. At this moment, there are 390,000 tonnes of high-level nuclear waste in worldwide inventories and nearly 10 million cubic metres of intermediate-level waste, all of it produced from nuclear power generation. The Commissioner went on to say that nations have not been able to find a disposal solution that meets their geology and that national consensus is that deep geological storage is the right solution to spent fuels and kept isolated from the environment for hundreds of thousands of years. But there is definitely not a consensus on the building of a nuclear waste dump in Australia, as evidence of witnesses to the Royal Commission have shown. One such opponent of the proposal is Associate Professor Mark Diesendorf from the Interdisciplinary Environment Studies at the University of New South Wales. I asked Mark to briefly explain more of what the Royal Commission has said about South Australia storing nuclear waste. The Royal Commission has made a number of tentative findings and I should first say that one of its tentative findings was essentially that there is no future really for nuclear electric power in South Australia. It just cannot compete with renewable and other sources. Now with regard to nuclear waste, however, the Royal Commission was very keen on the notion of accepting uh, high-level nuclear waste from the rest of the world and burying it in South Australia. They um, tried to justify that on the basis of there being lots of suitable geological situations in South Australia for storing waste for hundreds of thousands of years. And they produced a consultant's report which claimed that enormous profits will be coming from doing that. Do you know who the consultant is? Yes, yes, they gave the name. Jacobs is one of the consultants and there was another one as well, name I don't have in front of me. And what is your reaction to those pronouncements? Storing nuclear waste for 100,000 years or more doesn't just depend on having stable geology. It depends on having stable social institutions that can last for hundreds of thousands of years. And there never has been such an institution on this planet. So that's the first thing. With regard to the economics, the report of the Royal Commission did not reveal most of the assumptions made by the consultant's report. So all this talk of enormous profits actually depends on heroic assumptions about, well, first about the market, whether in fact overseas countries who are already storing nuclear waste on a temporary basis near their nuclear power stations, 
whether it would make sense for them to actually pay the costs, which would be quite high, of shipping their waste to Australia and then having it stored in Australia. So I think this is a heroic assumption and the consultant's report certainly deserves detailed analysis to try and extract what assumptions were actually being made. But the first critical assumption is that they will have a market and they will be able to charge the enormous prices that they are saying they could get away with charging. And I'm very sceptical about that. And the fact that it will have to be stored above ground for so many years, well, they're already doing it where they are now, so why would they bother? Well, that's exactly right. The storage of high-level waste has two stages. And as you said, the first stage is to store it in what they call dry casks for several decades. And that allows the high-level radioactive waste to cool down in terms of temperature and also to become less, less hot in terms of the intense radioactivity that occurs in the first few decades. So that's the first stage. And that has to be done before they can even think about underground storage. And then the second stage is underground storage basically forever, for hundreds of thousands of years. And I guess one of my concerns is that it will be very expensive to build an underground storage system in the hope that the rest of the world will come running with their high-level waste. So what is likely to happen if this crazy scheme ever goes ahead is that they will start storing dry casks above ground for several decades and then they will not actually build the underground storage. And then Australia will be stuck with these dry casks with highly radioactive materials inside that are only designed to store the waste for you know, a few decades. And these casks will then begin to erode and decay and Australia, South Australia and Australia will then be faced with the enormous costs of trying to manage these uncontrollable wastes. So this is unfortunately quite a possible scenario because there is no country in the world that has yet built and operated high-level nuclear waste repositories underground. The United States attempted and they spent 13.5 billion US dollars just doing preliminary work. That's 13.5 billion with a B and estimated that the whole thing would cost over its lifetime about 96 billion US dollars. So that's the kind of investment that's required. And, you know, those who are saying that we can do this and make huge profits seem to be up in the clouds because the United States, the world's richest country, has not yet succeeded in doing that. Can you talk a bit about these above-ground storage facilities? What are they made of and are you saying that they're unstable after a certain time? Any structure has a finite lifetime and these dry casks, which are made of concrete and steel and copper, are only designed for temporary storage. See, they would last much longer if all they were storing was shoes or, or something like that. But what they're storing is something that is physically hot in temperature and very, very hot in terms of radiation. 
And that activity going on within inside the cask inevitably will erode and destroy the cask. The casks are probably okay for temporary storage for 20 years, maybe 30 years, depending on how expensive they are. But they are not okay for 100 years or 1,000 or 100,000 years. And so there's real danger that Australia, if it went ahead with this scheme, would be stuck with thousands of these dry casks, you know, forever, trying to manage them as they decay. It's a horrendous scenario, uh, but I believe it's quite a likely one. Now, when people talk about casks, they think of wine casks. These are absolutely (laughs) ginormous, aren't they? Yes, these are very enormous, um, several times the height of an adult, and uh, they're cylindrical casks. I mean, they are reinforced for transportation and so on. But having said that, a lot of the wastes that are being stored in the United States and elsewhere are not even in dry casks. They're just storing them in very big pools underwater on a temporary basis. And, of course, those before they could ship them to Australia, they would have to extract the, the fuel rods, which are very, very highly radioactive, and then put them into these dry casks for transportation. So that's an additional expense, and many of the nuclear power plant operators don't want even that expense. So they're just storing them underwater on this temporary basis. So it is really a, a very strange industry, which is basically creating enormous problems for future generations. And who would monitor such a facility? Well, yes, that's a very good question. Uh, First, they would have to be monitored very intensively and protected and guarded for the decades that they're designed to survive. And then the underground storages, we can't just shove stuff underground and leave it there. They will have to be monitored for hundreds of thousands of years Uh, because on those timescales, which are geological timescales, even in South Australia... Earth movements can occur, changes can occur, and of course above ground. You could have a situation where in the future armed gangs could try and recover some of the radioactive wastes for their own purposes. These um, long-term radioactive storage repositories are going to have to be guarded very efficiently with social institutions created to do this for the indefinite future. Again, there is no precedent for this. Has the consultant looked at these problems? I believe not. I believe the consultant's report has... I haven't finished reading it, but it seems to only focus on its economic calculations. Well, where does it go from here? It seems a big waste of time and money. I think it's an enormous financial risk as well as a a physical risk to the people of South Australia and beyond. I'm thinking about the Royal Commission. If they've said, well, nuclear electricity is not going to happen and you're saying, well, the nuclear waste is not going to happen, well, what's the point of the Royal Commission? Well, indeed, what is the point? The next stage, I believe, is that the Royal Commission is now accepting comments on their tentative findings and they will produce 
uh, after considering the comments, they will produce a final report. Now, it seems that this Royal Commission has been set up partly with the intention, by those in power, the intention of pushing this idea that South Australia will make lots of money from storing the world's nuclear wastes. And we can see that because the advisory group for the Royal Commission is really comprised, except for one person, of enthusiasts for the nuclear industry. So only one person on that advisory committee is opposed to the nuclear industry. So it does look like it was set up with the aim of gaining support for this enormous risky project. And South Australia was the the one to do it, with a Labor government? Yes, yes. Well, of course, South Australia does have uranium mining, and I've no doubt that the uranium mining industry has played a big role in pushing for this Royal Commission and pushing for this proposal for storing the world's waste or a large fraction of the world's waste in South Australia. The figure I saw was that it was only going to be 13%. Yeah, well, that was a guess by the consultants. They've got no idea what percentage they will get. But what they're saying is that with 13%, they're claiming that they can make these enormous profits. I believe that they've also done a sensitivity analysis varying the percentage but there's no hard and fast rule that it's going to be 13%. And meanwhile, there's nuclear waste all over the world from these nuclear power plants that can't be properly destroyed. Ah, yes, and that's a problem that has to be grappled with. But I think in most countries it would be safer not to transport these wastes but to try to store them in the country that actually produces them. Could you imagine the ships that they'd have to build to bring them through Australia and then they'd have to build a a special railway line, special trains. They might even have to be a special port built in South Australia. Again, it's enormous expense. And who's going to pay for that? Well, of course, it would be Australia that would have to pay for it, unfortunately. Mm. I can't see the uranium industry uh, making such an investment. They would be hoping that taxpayers would be paying for these investments. Perhaps instead of a a Royal Commission into the nuclear industry, we should have had a Royal Commission looking at alternative energy. Yes. Well, there was an opportunity to talk about renewable energy. Uh, I wouldn't call it alternative anymore because it is now mainstream on a global scale in the sense that nowadays, every year, the investment in renewable energy is much greater than the investments in fossil fuels and nuclear energy combined. So, really, renewable energy is now mainstream. There was some opportunity to discuss renewable energy uh, before the Commission, and, in fact, I did so. I was one of the people who gave evidence. But it's true to say that the main focus of the Commission's work has been on the nuclear fuel cycle. Will you be participating further? Well, if I can find time, I will write a critique of some of the tentative findings along the lines that I've been discussing with you and the listeners. Okay, thank you, Mark. Okay, all the best. Bye. And that's Associate Professor Mark 
Desendorf from the University of New South Wales from the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies. And that's a big word to get around. I won't try it again. It's now 4.35. February 27 is the National Day for Western Sahara. On that day, 40 years ago, the Sahrawi Republic was declared. But still, the people are not free in Western Sahara, but controlled by a repressive Moroccan regime, except for the east of the Moroccan Wall, where an estimated 30,000 nomads live. The exiled government of the self-proclaimed Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic is presently based in refugee camps in Algeria, where up to 200,000 people live a precarious existence. On Saturday the 27th, the National Day will be commemorated in Melbourne by the Australian Western Sahara Association with a dinner in Fitzroy. Early this morning I spoke with Kate Lewis from Orsa and we began with a brief history of life for Western Saharans prior to 1976 under Spanish colonial rule. Under Spanish rule, the Sahrawi were not happy. They don't like being colonised. In 1973, already under Spanish rule, they had formed an independence movement known as the Polisario Front, and they had been fighting for independence from Spain. And the United Nations had already asked them 10 years before, in 1964, to prepare for a referendum of self-determination. And the Spanish colonisers had actually done a, a census in 1974 to prepare a voter list. But at that point in time, Spain was in a bit of a power vacuum because Franco was dying and Morocco could see their chance to actually take over Western Sahara instead of allowing this vote to go ahead. And basically that is what happened, that they came in and persuaded the Spanish to leave. And in 1976, the last of the Spanish left on the 26th of February, and on the 27th, the Saharawis declared the Saharawi Republic. That is the anniversary that is now... Uh, a 40th anniversary that we are commemorating here in Melbourne with a dinner on on Saturday. And what happened once the Spanish left? When the Spanish left, the Moroccan army, which had been infiltrating over the border for some months, they then came right into the main capital city, El Ayun, and they were very brutal and the Sahrawi people who could uh, fled, but needless to say, there were some who couldn't go, who were too old or too young, or because they really had to walk on foot. Not very few had vehicles, and they were, you know, perhaps not at home or something like that the day that the army came. And so, in this way, the whole population quite suddenly became divided in two. The people who and then were subjugated by the Moroccans and the people who could flee to safety and freedom, but freedom of a different kind that 
they can uh, they they can say what they want and do what they want, but they can't be at home. They are now in refugee camps in southern Algeria. There's also people living in the eastern side of Western Sahara. Yes, so a war ensued for 14 years, coming and going with different frontiers. And actually, at the very beginning, Mauritania was holding the southern part of Western Sahara. And when they withdrew and acknowledged the Sahrawi Republic, Morocco then took that over. But there had been times when the Sahrawi might have had all of that territory. But eventually, in the 1980s, the Moroccans, with the help of America and Saudi Arabia and some other funding bodies, they built a big wall running the entire length of the country over 2,000 kilometres. And that now separates the part of Western Sahara that is under Moroccan control and the part that is held by the Polisario Front for the Sahrawi people. And there are some nomadic pastoralists who are living in that, what they call the liberated zones. And resources the key to what we're seeing now? The exploitation of resources? That is certainly one of the key factors. Western Sahara is very rich in phosphate. Morocco as well. Morocco already has a lot of phosphate. It doesn't really need the extra part that is in um, Western Sahara, but they um, are selling that nevertheless for gain and this is where Australia comes in because we are one of the importers of that phosphate which comes to Victoria and Incitec Pivot, the fertiliser company, uh, is the importer. The role of the UN in Western Sahara Well, yes. In 1991, the Sahrawis were full of hope because the United Nations undertook to broker a ceasefire and organise a referendum of self-determination. And things seemed to be, you know, going reasonably well. The Moroccans did try to make trouble at every point. They wouldn't unload the boats bringing materials for the United Nations mission. They caused, you know, lots and lots of little, every little tiny thing they could, they got in the way of the smooth running of the mission. But the the main thing that it had to do then was to update the census of 1974, had to be updated to 1992, I suppose, by then, by 1991, they agreed to come, 1992 was when the Identification Commission actually started work. Because some people would have died, other people would have turned 18 in that interim period. Oh, this took a very long time, partly because of the silly antics of uh, of the Moroccans who just tried to make it difficult. And they brought lots of people in, some of whom they coached to be like Sahrawis and claim that they were Sahrawis and lots got rejected and then eventually in I think it was in the year 2000 the voter list was agreed and immediately the Moroccans flooded it with more appeals all of which had been rejected before 
But at that point, Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General, sort of threw up his hands in despair and said, you know, well, okay, then we can't hold a referendum. Ever since then, really, the story of the United Nations has really been one of failure, I'm sorry to say, because they have just not managed to fulfill the mission that they created to hold this referendum. And of course, since that time, there's a history of human rights abuses, harassment, torture, even deaths. Absolutely, yes, this is... uh, And so, yeah, failing the referendum, there has been a movement for at least a decade to ask the United Nations mission to take on the role of monitoring human rights abuses. They've been particularly marked in occupied Western Sahara by the Moroccan authorities who don't take kindly to any Saharawis who believe in self-determination or independence. But uh, there are also allegations occasionally from the camp's side as well. And so we've said, well, and the the Polisario have said they would welcome United Nations observers to monitor human rights, but the Moroccans are not keen on it at all, and they have successfully lobbied against this reform in the Security Council. And so, unfortunately, they have a very strong ally in France, which is a permanent member of the Security Council and can threaten a veto, can stop anything by threatening the veto. So this reform, which really should have happened a long time ago, is still waiting to happen. And life both in the occupied territories and in the refugee camps is is not ideal, is it? Absolutely. It's very harsh in different ways. The big problem for the refugees is the weather, really. It's very hot in summer, just desperately hot, you know, 40 to 50 degrees in the summer, and very harsh winds blowing up sandstorms frequently all through the year. So there are a lot of respiratory diseases and problems with eyes and uh, skin and so on, and not to mention malnutrition because the food aid is really inadequate. And then just lately in the October there were terrible floods and 75% of the infrastructure, the, the mud brick buildings basically, have all melted away in the, the rain and collapsed and crumbled. And so, yeah, the camps are in a very dire situation. They rely on humanitarian aid. They do completely rely on. And uh, Australia has sent, you know, a tiny drop in the ocean. We uh, managed to put together a container with medical supplies which arrived there uh, in December. But, you know, it's a tiny contribution and they need a lot more aid than that. And it would be great if Australia could make a contribution to that humanitarian aid. There are support groups in many countries. There's the Australian Western Sahara Association. Many more? There are, yes. There's the Western Sahara Campaign in the UK. Also a new group in New Zealand called the Western Sahara Campaign NZ. And 
in America, there's a support group. Those are like the English-speaking countries, but it's strong in Scandinavia, particularly Norway, Sweden, uh, and Denmark. Then and Germany and France, and Italy, and then in Spain, there's huge groups, a uh, number of groups, because the although the Spanish government is very friendly with Morocco and very ambivalent about Western Sahara, the people of Spain, like 80 to 90 to 99 percent, are totally in favour of independence for Western Sahara uh, for their former colony, and they give fantastic support, both in material ways, or largely in material ways, but also where they can in political ways as well. The National Day, as we said, is being celebrated this Saturday with a dinner. Are you booked out? No, we still would have um, opportunity for people to book. The booking is with trybooking.com, and this is the number that if you put in uh, www.trybooking.com slash 171651, that will take you to the place where you can book for the dinner. It's being held in Fitzroy in uh, the city end of Brunswick Street, number 19, at a Greek restaurant called the Aegean. It starts at 7 for 7.30. The tickets are $50. It's a fundraiser or 45 for concession rate. Good, oh, Kate. So thank you, Jan, and... Uh, see you there. See you there, yes, right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Cheers. Now, if you aren't booked up for a Saturday night, that address is try booking, T-R-Y-B-O-O-K-I-N-G dot com slash 171 651 for a scrumptious dinner at a Greek restaurant in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. I spoke recently with Peter Boyle, who outlined the history of Malaysia under British colonial rule to the present day under the Barisan Nationale, the National Front, which has ruled since independence in 1957. He also spoke about the ongoing resistance to repression and harassment, both in the early times until the present. In January of this year, five young socialists from Socialist Alliance in Australia visited Malaysia on an exposure tour. One of those was Sarah Hathaway, who began this interview telling me about the planning for the tour. I think it was discussions over a year between the Socialist Party of Malaysia and Socialist Alliance here in Australia. Just, you know, working out the practicalities of the tour and what the PSM in Malaysia wanted to get out of it, what we wanted to get out of it. For me, personally, I didn't have a lot of expectations going into it. I didn't know a lot about 
politics in Malaysia. So I think that worked well for me, not having any expectations. I then got a lot out of it and learnt a lot through touring around the country. How many people went in all? So there were six from Australia, all Socialist Alliance members, five of whom were part of the youth wing, so all under the age of 26. Any problem getting visas? No, um, you don't need a visa for a tourist holiday from Australia to Malaysia. Did you think that you might be suspect a bit? We didn't know what to expect. Um, There did end up being problems over there. We knew that as tourists we weren't allowed to participate in direct political activity, like, you know, going to a rally or something like that. But towards the end, we had problems with the special branch of the Malaysian police. And then we we did find out later that that was partly due to stepped-up security, due to um, there was a terrorist attack in Indonesia around the same time. So, Okay, so you arrived there on the 15th of January. Yep. What were your plans for the next couple of days? By the time everyone got there on the 15th, it was quite late. So we were taken to our accommodation, which was actually a Catholic church in Kuala Lumpur, And that church had actually been part of a massive democratic rights movement, the Bursi movement, which was quite rare for churches to get involved in political activity. And then our first sort of full day, we went to the PSM's national office in Brickfields and we had a presentation on the history of Malaysia as well as, you know, current political issues affecting the country. How open is the political party, the Socialist Party of Malaysia, with the authorities? They're well known? Yeah, they are well known in the sense because they are the only Socialist Party in Malaysia and they do have an elected member um, in the lower house of federal government. Nevertheless, they have harassment at all? They talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, well, they have they have had members arrested. There's a number of sort of anti-democratic laws in Malaysia, including the Sedition Act, um, which make things like speaking out against government policy or participating in activism problematic. Um, so I guess in that sense, too, they are quite well known to the police. And are some of the members of the party facing the Sedition Act? Yes, yeah, so they've had... Um, a, a number of campaigns. I think one of the most recent ones was Babus Khalid or Free Khalid. So he's one of their youth members who was detained in jail for 26 days without even going to court, oversharing a, a cartoon on Facebook. What did you do while you were in Kuala Lumpur after that? We headed off quite quickly after that. We didn't spend much time in KL. We travelled to the state of Parak which is where they have their member who's elected to the lower house of parliament. And we spent two or three days in Parak State touring around different branches and seeing the, visiting the different communities that PSM are working with. Is that an agricultural area or industrial? So it's a mix of both. Um, a large part of it uh, used to be tin mining area as well as some plantation area. And most of the the work that PSM is doing is in terms of housing and land struggles. So a lot of this old tin mining and plantation land, the government sold off to private developers 
and private developers have since come in trying to force residents off the land who have been there for like a number of generations and these residents are saying we're not leaving without any sort of comp- compensation and you know some of these fights have been ongoing for nearly two decades now and they still haven't been resolved. Are these local developers or are they coming from overseas? From what we could say yeah could tell I think it's it's mainly overseas developers, like larger sort of multinational companies. And what do they want to develop? Oh, one example, because there's sort of there's three different ethnic groups in Malaysia. There's Chinese Malays, Indian Malays, and ethnic Malays. Every community that we visited, it's a like it's quite segregated, so it's one race. So we visited an area um, of Chinese farmers. It was massive area of land. And they, the developers want to turn the whole area into a theme park. And this is despite the area being quite productive in terms of food and it, it being quite an important issue in terms of food security in Malaysia. Are they going to encourage tourists to come in from overseas or somewhere for this, this theme park? Or would it be local people? No. Um, so most of the development is targeted towards attracting tourists to the country. And how are the people fighting back? Getting together, organising themselves collectively, you know, taking it to the Human Rights Commission, to the Anti-Corruption Office, you know, actual on-the-ground protesting, like, you know, protesting out front of the local minister's office, um, a whole range of things, really. Why would the Human Rights Commission and the Anti-Corruption Office be, be involved in something like this? Well, quite often we saw that Developers are getting away with certain things because, like, there's no checks and balances. So it was sort of implied that it's it's money going in the right hands that they can get away with violating building codes or building things where they shouldn't be built or intimidating and sending thugs into communities to try and force them out, which has happened on a number of occasions. And then the, that's the anti-corruption office and then the human rights office has gotten involved in one particular case where they ruled that this particular community must receive housing before they get shifted out. But then that still hasn't happened. So I guess in, it's, in that sense it's almost a bit of a, a paper tiger even though they made a ruling it still hasn't been followed through. Is adequate housing for people a problem? Yeah, it is a problem um, because b- besides from these communities that are getting forced off land, we did also visit a number of like low-income units. So it's just like 18-storey, multiple blocks of units. And we were told that that was meant to be temporary housing until workers could, you know, save up to buy a house. But the fact is because the low-income workers or the single parents or elderly they can't save up and renting for some reason renting isn't a thing in Malaysia so it's either you know buy a house or get stuck in this really like poor quality unmaintained blocks of units. And what employment can people get in areas like that? A lot of sort of it's small businesses seems it's still small business is still quite big in Malaysia so you know small cafes small low-key retail but I mean a lot of that would be impacted on by development again so there's just multiple construction projects of huge shopping malls everywhere 
one example in Kuala Lumpur, there's like five of these mega malls like in proximity of each other within a couple of blocks radius. And that's all to attract tourists, but it is having a huge impact on local workers who are struggling to compete. You're saying that people are losing the agricultural land. What about deforestation and loss of diversity or biodiversity? Yeah, so again, that's being impacted on by development, but also other projects like hydraulic dams. So we visited another area called Cameron Highlands where they're about to finish one dam project and there's another two planned to be built. So there's a lot of logging going on in the area as well. And it's also, once these dams are built, it's going to flood a huge area of land, which will also impact the diversity of the forest, but it's also going to impact on the Orang Asli people, which is the Indigenous peoples of Malaysia. And where can they go if that happens? Well, yeah, the government are in the process of relocating them to new villages, promising them economic benefits of the dams being built, but some of them are refusing to move. And, yeah, I mean, it doesn't bode well for them because their whole livelihoods are based around the diversity of living in the jungle environment. And they, you know, they don't seem to have a lot of rights in Malaysia. So they'll be Um, forcibly removed? I think, yeah, if it gets to that point, they will be forcibly removed. But the government at the moment are doing everything they can to sort of, you know, bribe them out, like lure them out willingly. But, yeah, if it comes down to it, the government will have to forcibly remove them. Is there also deforestation to bring in more palm plantations? Yes, yep. So everywhere we went in Malaysia, there was just massive oil palm plantations. And I did some more research coming back from Malaysia and found out that according to the United Nations, Malaysia actually has some of the best, you know, rainforest protection policy in that area of Asia, but then at the same time, they're losing that biodiversity and rainforest faster than any other country in that area. So again, it sort of points back to corruption that if they've got the laws in place, why aren't they being followed? Why is, you know, the deforestation such a huge problem? You mentioned mining before. How extensive is that? So the tin, tin mining is finished now. But there is gold mining in Malaysia, which um, I was told was is owned by Australian companies. And there's also, I think, bauxite mining as well. So, again, it's fairly pollutive industries and it's having impacts environmentally as well. Are they also bringing in migrant workers to do these jobs? Yes. So the PSM are in the process of raising awareness around migrant workers so there's similarly to Australia there's a very sort of anti-migrant worker sentiment in Malaysia because there's so many being brought in from Indonesia, Bangladesh who are hugely exploited they you know there's things like getting their passports taken off them it's pretty much treated like slave labor so PSM like leaflet um, on the street to sort of raise awareness about how migrant workers are treated And they're also wanting to put a booklet together on workers' rights for migrants and send them over to these countries where the workers are coming from to other NGOs and political parties just so that 
migrant workers are aware of what they're getting themselves into before they come over. And the trade union movement there? The percentage is quite low. I think it's less than 20%. And most of the unions are yellow unions, so they work for the bosses and not for the workers. And, you know, experiences from the PSM have shown that it's easier to organise ununionised workers than it is to work with unionised workers just because the level of bureaucracy involved in working with unions. Where else did you visit? So in the state of Parak, we also visited as a Malaysia-poor village where they'd, again, been relocated to because of another development project. And they'd been pushed so far out of any sort of township that the whole village was basically unemployed. Drug problems were a huge issue. There was nothing for young people to do. So again, PSM were working with them in terms of trying to put programs in place. I'd imagine there's not a lot of social security? No. So again, like unlike Australia where we've, we had a welfare state that's in the process of being dismantled, Malaysia has never had that in place to begin with. So, yeah, there's no sort of security net there for people. Looking at social media in Malaysia, did you feel free to use social media or would you feel as of that it's being restricted or watched? It's not restricted. It definitely it would have been... I'd say it would have been watched because, I mean, that's what's resulted in PSM members being arrested previously. But we did get some advice about, you know, putting photos up of the tour and we told that that would be okay. So in that sense, yeah, we didn't have any difficulties around social media use. Were you there during the demonstration against the, the TTP? Yes, we were in um, Kuala Lumpur at the time and observed it and we weren't allowed to participate. But you could definitely tell in Malaysia that there is much more awareness around the TPPA than there is in Australia. What were the people mainly focusing on? The impacts on healthcare and medicine, particularly I think there was a, a lobby group there around HIV and having access to that medication. But also a lot of teachers are getting involved around copyright issues, like not even being able to photocopy handouts for their students because under the TPPA that's going to breach copyright laws. Yeah, so, I mean, the PSM have been really good at breaking down the TPPA to basic things that are going to affect workers so that they, so that workers can understand why it's a problem. Did you notice much emphasis while you were there on the government corruption, particularly the corruption around Razak, Prime Minister, who he just found this $986 million in his bank account and... Yeah, no, it was sort of, it was mentioned in the background. I think when was it the outcome of the court case found that he wasn't guilty. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that corruption is fairly widespread or, you know, the government's just turning a blind eye to what these private developing companies are doing or money's going into certain pockets. But there's definitely something going on there, which is why so often PSM are needing to take cases to the anti-corruption office. What did you find out about the Bearsai movement? That is definitely probably one of the largest movements that has happened in Malaysia since independence. 
I think the last rally that they had was last year. And just looking at the photos, they were huge. Like, we're talking thousands and thousands of people out on the streets and much a much broader movement than anything else that's happened as well. For example, you know, bringing in the churches as well. And they've had they've had four rallies now, and it, and it is a growing movement, which, putting that in context of the PSM are currently going through a recruitment burst and they're getting a lot of recognition in the community, I think it is pointing towards a bit of an upsurge of consciousness around people's power and people being able to organise and where, where that will lead, it's hard to say, but there's definitely a change happening in Malaysia. Can you talk a bit more about Special Branch and your interactions with them? They didn't actually talk to the six of us. They followed us around for the second half of the tour, including oh, we, we did do some, some actual tourist, typical tourist activities. So we went to Batu Cave in the midst of a Hindu festival and they followed us in there and... The only interaction that sort of happened was between them and PSM members who wanted to know what was going on, which we sort of found a bit interesting that, you know, PSM could confront them and actually get information out of them, which we didn't think would really happen here in Australia. So there's no repercussions for them, for you being there? As far as we know, at this point, no. Um, we were held up at the airport leaving. Not too much, but, like, going through customs, our passports were taken for, you know, three, five minutes, and then they came back and just handed it over with no explanation. So, I mean, there is a slight concern that there may be problems if we want to visit again in the future, but we haven't been told anything formally. To sum up, Sarah, you said when you were going there that you didn't know a lot about Malaysian politics, etc. What do you know now? That race and religion um, are two big things in Malaysia that are, you know, impacting on social relations, economic relations and just politics in general, and that the, the ruling party, Barisan National, play into that and they deliberately, you know, whip up the differences between races and religion to sort of cause, I guess, disunity um, amongst people, um, which I guess is one similarity between Malaysian politics and Australian politics, which is something that the Liberal government does quite well here as well. And the highlight? The highlight of the tour would be visiting... Um, we did get to visit Anarang Asli village, where they'd been relocated to, um, and they offered to take us on a one-hour boat ride upriver to their original village and we got to have lunch with them and, and meet that community. None of that was planned. It was just an off-the-cuff offer. So, yeah, that was pretty spectacular. And what did you learn up there? Just that they're, you know, a really peaceful, easygoing culture with a lot of history and, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real travesty if, if that community and other villages get destroyed. But again, PSM are working quite closely with them. And I think the thing that's probably going to stop that is international attention. One thing the Malaysian government don't like is being in, being embarrassed in front of you know in, the international community. So I think that's what it's going to take to stop that from happening. And that was Sarah Hathaway, who spent two weeks in Malaysia last month. You're listening to 3CR. This is 855 AM. 
This is Digital Radio 3CR. You can find us on 3cr.org.au. This program will be sitting there for a week and then it changes over to the next week. Or if you'd like it sent down into your computer, you can get onto the other part of it and podcast it to your computer at 3cr.org.au. And the time now is coming up to 11 minutes past 5 o'clock. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. The elections in Venezuela in early December last year resulted in a clear victory of the opposition over the Bolivarian alliance, winning a two-thirds supermajority. But the Socialist Party are disputing the election of at least eight opposition candidates in the election and if the Supreme Court would uphold just one appeal, the opposition would fall short of that two-thirds supermajority. I'm speaking once again with Jim McElroy, member of Socialist Alliance National Executive who has lived and worked in Venezuela in recent years. We began talking about the new emergency economic measures announced by President Maduro in recent days. Yes, it is very significant. It's President Maduro, who, as we know, is the socialist president of Venezuela who took over the presidency from Hugo Chavez after he tragically died. There's been a struggle going on for the last couple of years over the future of the country and the future of the Bolivarian Revolution. That resulted in a crisis in December last year when the right-wing parties, the pro capitalist and oligarchy parties won a significant majority in the National Assembly. That is still unresolved in the sense that the Supreme Court suspended several of the seats that they won pending a a sort of check of the results because there has been allegations of vote rigging and so on. I think that's still underway. However, the standoff continues. Basically, in Venezuela, you have a position where it's rather more similar to the United States than to Australia. You know, the National Assembly, the Parliament, doesn't have the full power. In some ways, it's subordinate in many ways to the President. The President still has control of the levers of the economy, and but the National Assembly can put up legislation and can, if the right wing is strong enough, block some of the things that the president's trying to do. So we're going to see a constitutional crisis uh, develop. But at the moment, it looks like the Supreme Court is basically supporting the president and saying that the president's activities are constitutional. That's a little bit of background. What has happened just in the last couple of days is that 
President Maduro has announced a string of emergency economic measures because the Venezuelan economy has been in, in absolute crisis and that's the background to why there was a swing against the Socialist Party of Venezuela in the, in the last National Assembly elections and there is a material basis to that loss of support which is the deepening economic crisis. The main measures that the President has adopted, he gave a five-hour address to the nation, would have been February 17. He explained the extent of the economic crisis affecting the country and the plan to tackle it. And that plan basically involves a number of measures, just to summarise. The economic plans included changes to the country's multi-tiered exchange rate, an increase in the domestic price of petrol, and implementation of a new tax system, and the expansion of community control over food distribution. Perhaps I could ask you if you could just talk to those four issues. First of all, you have to understand the extent of the crisis and, and in the media, international media, you know, they've been sort of crowing about the imminent collapse of the socialist government in, in Venezuela, but I think that's a little bit premature because Maduro is still there and, so, and also the PSUV, the Socialist Party, still controls the majority of mayors and state governors. So you've got this multi-tiered government system, a bit like Australia in that respect. To give you a little bit of a, a background, in the last two years, inflation has absolutely skyrocketed. It peaked at 140% last year, and this is the, the most serious aspect of the situation, a 97% drop in earnings from oil, and that's the principal source of income of the country. Uh, Venezuela is fundamentally an oil-based economy, and of course that's a problem in itself. Well, of course, the plummeting price of oil on the world market is, is what's behind that. The measures that uh, Maduro has uh, announced, which of course still to be implemented, first of all on the question of the uh, uh, exchange rate, that's a really complicated one. <laughs> Economists would bust their head on, on the Venezuelan exchange rate, but the Venezuelan currency is the Bolivar, and there are a whole series of different prices for the Bolivar to the dollar ex uh, as an exchange rate. So it was really complicated. There was not just one exchange rate, but several. This is going to be changed to a two-level model, although some economists were calling for the unification of the exchange rate, just one. There'll be one subsidised exchange rate of 10 bolivars to the dollar and one free-floating exchange rate that will be based on market supply and demand. And that preferential rate will be made available to the health and food sectors, to the social missions and to industries involved in national production. So they've been struggling with this question of the exchange rate over a number of years now and um, anyone who has travelled to Venezuela, as I have, uh, on more than one occasion is sort of affected by the difference between the official exchange rate and the, and the, and the black market rate. It's almost impossible to operate on the official exchange rate, which is way under the unofficial rate. Anyway, they're trying to stabilise it, basically. They have been struggling to do this over a number of years and they're going to uh, try to get on, on top of that now. The second uh, major change, this one is really quite significant, and that is government has significantly reduced the subsidy for the domestic cost of petrol. Petrol has stayed at the same price for 20 years, and there's been a long-standing debate what to do about that, with Venezuela being you know, basically a petroleum-based country. The subsidisation of the petrol price has got entrenched in the national culture as they've tried previously to try to do it. They've increased the price of gasoline's going to be increased by something like 6,000%, which sounds enormous, but actually 
you're really talking about one cent a litre it was. It was absolutely ridiculous. There was no relationship between the cost of petrol domestically and, and the price of the petrol. Venezuelan petrol will still be the cheapest in the world and drivers will still be able to fill up their tanks for less than the cost of a milkshake. But even so, the increased state revenue will be invested in the state's social missions. That is a critical thing that Maduro has stressed, that the purpose of this exercise is to try to tackle the dreadful fall in state revenues because of the fall of the global price of petrol, of oil. But the purpose of increasing this price is to keep funding the social missions, which are the very unique institutions in Venezuela that provide free education, free health care, a whole lot of other state subsidies and pensions and so on. The people are basically being asked to accept what it really amounts to, in the end, to quite a modest increase in the price of petrol in return for the maintenance of the social missions, which are extremely popular. I haven't seen any reports so far of the popular reaction to this move. I think it has been anticipated for quite a while. Even under President Chavez, they tried to increase the price of petrol and there was a lot of protest. So it remains to be seen what the reaction will be. It may be well be that, you know, because the price is still very, very modest by international standards, it'll still be the cheapest petrol in the world for people in Venezuela. Maybe they'll be able to rise, uh, ride through it. One thing to point out, of course, is that in the history of Venezuela, the modern rise of the Bolivarian Revolution can probably be traced back to 1989 Caracaso, which was when the previous right-wing government at that time raised the price of gasoline. Actually, it led to a significant rise in the price of bus fares. There was a popular revolt which was put down very, very ruthlessly by the government and thousands of people were killed. And that actually ignited the modern movement that led to the Bolivarian Revolution of the last 15 years. I'll just explain one other point about this. The rise has actually been welcomed by environmental groups who actually say that the unrealistically low price of petrol has created a, a sort of a, a rather apathetic attitude towards waste of fossil fuel resources. They're actually saying from an environmental point of view this is, this is a good thing. So there's also the question of the tax. Once again, that's a little bit complicated, but really what it involves is an attempt to increase the collection of tax. What you find in many, many countries in the third world is that the tax system itself and the tax department is very weak and doesn't have a method of collecting tax and tax avoidance is on a massive scale. Mind you, we have much the same problem in a country like Australia, but we do have a reasonably professional tax office. But it's been a struggle over many years for the Venezuelan government to try to increase its ability to carry out the collection of tax, especially, of course, from the wealthy and companies. Companies void just wholesale avoid tax and they don't pay the share of tax. An interesting sideline on this is that Maduro has been negotiating or the, the government has been negotiating with the government of Ecuador led by uh, President Correa because they have been very successful apparently in increasing the collection of tax with their system. Venezuela is collaborating. In Ecuador the equivalent of the Bolivarian Revolution is called the Citizens' Revolution and Ecuador has has also been very successful in reducing the uh, degree of 
poverty in the country and, and, and collecting more money from the, from the wealthy section. Venezuela's going to work with Ecuador on that one. Probably the fourth uh, element is trying to tackle deeply entrenched corruption. But there's no question about it that corruption is a major problem. Corruption is a major problem in, in all countries, including Australia, but in third world countries it, it becomes deeply entrenched because of the, you know, the fact that even government officials are not paid properly and uh, it automatically leads to you know, the institutionalisation of a system of corruption. What he's done is basically put popular committees from the local communities organised into the communal councils in charge of administering the state supermarket chain. That follows on an investigation by the police into the, that supermarket chain and more than 55 officials were arrested for corruption. This sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back and Maduro said they would take strong action to prevent corruption among, uh, in, in state institutions as well as in the private sector. And that's been a big issue, hasn't it, hoarding of food? Absolutely, yes. It's interesting to quote what Maduro said in his speech. Either we have a distributive system run by mafias and parasites or we change, he said. That applies, as you said, both to the state and to the private sector. One of the major problems which I think led to a fall in popularity for the government leading up to the National Assembly election was the problems caused by hoarding. Hoarding by private companies, by private groups, actually since the election raids have taken place on a number of warehouses and they've found huge stocks of things that were in extreme short supply like toilet paper or coffee or powdered milk or something like this which was becoming extremely hard for the people to buy for the election and then after the election we find uh, they're more easily available which is quite normal in many ways with these kind of things. Is there a story behind the replacement of the the left-wing economist who had a pretty high-powered job and he's been replaced only six, after six weeks? Salas. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% aware of that specific, you know, the impact of that specific case. Maybe it has had an effect in allowing the president to carry through these particular measures. And, you know, some of the measures may be more popular than others. Some of the issues here are not actually a debate between a right-wing position and a left-wing position, but a genuine puzzle over what is the best thing to do. When you look at things like exchange rates and so on, it's, it's not entirely clear all the time what is the best way to tackle it. The problem is that in all this, you're dealing with an international capitalist system. You're dealing with market prices for oil, which are currently ridiculously low, considering that, first of all, oil will begin to become much less uh, available. We're going to use up the world's stocks of oil, but uh, on the other hand, of course, it's a fossil fuel, so we want to turn away in the medium term from the use of oil and, and try to find alternative means. Well, the other thing that I should mention, the other major piece of news that's happened very recently, of course, is the um, decision by a number of top oil-exporting countries to introduce a production freeze on their oil to keep it at the oil output level as, as of last month in January. The governments that met and decided this were Venezuela, Russia, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. This is the first time in the last 15 years that there's been some sort of coordinated action by major oil producers. You know, they've all been churning out the oil even though the price of oil's kept falling. Normally you would expect 
when the price of oil starts to fall, that the oil-producing countries would start to reduce their output, which would tend to bring the price up again. But they've all been churning it out at a, a ridiculous rate. And I think Venezuela played quite an important role in, in negotiating this agreement. According to the report that I've seen from uh, Venezuela Analysis, which I would refer everyone who's interested in more detail about the Venezuelan situation, venezuelaanalysis.com, there was a, a compromise between cutting production, which was favoured by Russia and Venezuela, and allowing production to flow a bit more, which Saudi Arabia was pushing for. But they've come to a compromise. It is dependent, apparently, on other oil-producing countries agreeing, you know, not to continue to just increase their production. In particular, those uh, Iran and Iraq. But um, you know, there, there was a, there are a few difficulties with this because Iran, of course, is just recovering from sanctions. Their oil production was actually slashed, and I think they're going to be arguing that they should be allowed to increase their oil production, you know, because they, they've been very severely hit by the, the sanctions, which have now been released to some extent. One thing to note is that, that we're talking here about export prices. The, the thing about the Venezuelan domestic situation is that there is absolutely no connection between the Venezuelan domestic price of oil and, and what's happening internationally in the sense that it's been kept at this, it's not just low, it's ridiculously low. Well, looking at the environment issues for Venezuela, the worst drought in nearly 50 years, and that's having a big impact. It is, it is. One thing interesting, sort of a strange anomaly of the Venezuelan uh, energy situation is that ironically, from an internal point of view, in terms of production of power, Venezuela is almost 100% renewable because power all comes from hydro from the, um, the huge dams on the Orinoco River. But it's not renewable if there's no rain. Oh, well, it's still renewable, but you don't, have enough, <laughs> you don't have enough of it. You start to suffer an energy shortage. That has been a problem. I think that they have had a little bit of rain, but um, I'm not sure of the, of the current situation there. Obviously, yes, if the, if the river levels fall, then um, the, the degree of power they're going to get is, is, is affected. Obviously, we wouldn't want Venezuela to start turning to coal production or something like that because of the lack of, uh, of hydro. I know that a couple of years ago they did have a number of power blackouts and shortages, but I haven't heard of that being, at the moment, I haven't seen reports that that has been the major problem. Can you explain some of the areas that they're going to, that's going to be impacted by this? the lack of electricity. To be truthful, I, I can't really say that. That's, that's Although you said long... they were going to reduce the working day and the shopping centres were cutting their hours and things like that. I've seen reports of that, but I haven't, uh, I haven't, I'm not aware to what extent that has been actually implemented yet. I think the, the latest economic crisis measures are going to sort of overshadow everything else. What we're going to see is if things work out as they would appear to be, there'll be an increase in state revenue, first of all, from the reduction in the subsidy of the oil uh, domestically and then if it's true that oil prices do start to increase. Just on an aside on that, I did see a report in the media just about the general situation of the oil price by one commentator saying that the current price of oil, which is like $30 or, or even less, on the international market is completely unrealistic from an objective point of view and he was predicting that it was even irrespective of actions by the countries to limit production that just because 
there's been a fall because of the low price there's been a fall in oil search and exploration for oil and new technology in the oil industry that the production is going to fall anyway that there will be pressure to increase the price of oil just from an objective point of view this commentator was predicting it will be up towards $80 or $85 by the end of the year well I don't know how true that is I would be very surprised if the price of oil doesn't start to rise again just finally, Jim, over the last year or so, there was a lot of social unrest, there were demonstrations, even people killed. What's the situation now, three months, two months after the election? Well, it is interesting. I mean, I'm not on the ground. I'm only going on reports that I see from, you know, Telesur and from Venezuela Analysis and so on. I think it's a kind of a standoff at the moment. <laughs> Maybe the right wing are still trying to figure out exactly how to handle their new position of influence. They are not sure whether to take... Their, I think there are different wings among the Conservative forces whether to take the parliamentary road and concentrate on trying to block Maduro's measures through constitutional methods. Uh, there is the extreme right violent wing of the opposition who wants to go back into the streets and start burning buses and so on, which is what they... and setting up barricades, which they did two years ago through the what was called the Garimbas, and, of course, that's led to another clash between Maduro and the Bolivarian government and uh, the right-wing National Assembly because the National Assembly is trying to pass an amnesty law to release some leaders of those riots who were arrested and charged and convicted of violence and of uh, inciting violence. There's a small number of, of leaders of that wing of the right-wing that, that are in prison at the moment. And, of course, that's caused a big storm of protests in the West, in the Western media and so on. But you would have to ask these people that are protesting, well, what would you do with people that actually organise the burning of buses, the, the burning of houses, and, in fact, also responsible for the murder of a number of supporters of the Socialist Party of Venezuela and, uh, and citizens? So are we going to just allow free-for-all and no rule of law at all? So that's going to be another one. That's another crisis coming down the line because the National Assembly will try to pass an amnesty law to have these people released and Maduro has stated that he will not allow that to happen. Plenty to watch about what's happening in Venezuela and that's Jim McElroy from Socialist Alliance who's um, lived there for at least a year and has been there a number of times in recent years. It's 5.32 coming up next James Petrus Professor Emeritus from New York talking about Syria and related issues. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. People Powered Radio, an exhibition celebrating 40 years of 3CR. 
From the 18th of March till the 23rd of April, the exhibition will feature new work by contemporary artists, rare audio, 3CR ephemera, archival posters and photos, live on-site broadcasts and music events. Come along to the opening night, Friday, March 18th from 6pm at Gertrude Contemporary Art Gallery, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. For more information, visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. And we conclude the program today looking at Syria, where a number of political commentators are putting forward the view that the final act begins. This morning I spoke with Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus in Bingham, New York, and I put that proposition to him. Clearly, this has been a war organized by the United States and its proxies in the uh, terrorist world. It's been supported from the beginning by the Turkish government, Saudi Arabia. It resembles the uh, effort, uh, U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, only they have fewer supporters than they had in Afghanistan. They've devastated the country and caused the huge refugee problem in in Europe by destroying the economy and engaging in this kind of a a terrorist war. Their purpose is largely to ravage the country like they ravaged Iraq and Libya. And uh, I think their strategy has backfired with the presence of the Russian Air Force, and that has reversed the uh, power base and limited the capacity of the Turks to channel troops and arms and other resources to the terrorists. So right now, the situation is that the uh, Syrian government is on the offensive. Turks and Saudis want the United States to intervene. The U.S. is supporting the Kurds, so they they are in an ambiguous position with the Turks and certainly can't afford to send in large numbers of troops in any kind of major confrontation with Russia. So the situation is of a continuing stalemate, with, albeit one in which uh, the Syrians, the Kurds, and the Russians have, have taken the offensive and have uh, limited the regions in which the uh, uh, extreme uh, ISIS groups operate. And this has infuriated the Turks, who are looking to devastate their uh, Kurdish uh, population and limit their uh, scope for their uh, autonomy, political autonomy. What was in it for Erdogan, apart from getting rid of the Kurds? He's put his head on the line, hasn't he? Yes. The Kurdish uh, opposition in Syria has been a very effective force. It has received support in part from the United States, in part from the Kurds in Iraq, and it works very closely with its supporters in uh, in Europe, and that's very important also. So Uh, The Kurds are in a fairly solid position. Their main military support comes from the Russians, who have been bombing the uh, ISIS military uh, 
pipelines and have allowed the Kurds to gain political and military advantage. So with the Russian intervention has not only favored the Bashar Assad government in Damascus, but has favored the advance of the Kurds in Syria. And this is where the uh, Turks shot down the Russian plane and Russia has threatened to bomb Ankara if they continue their uh, provocations. What did Turkey hope to get out of getting involved in this conflict, though? Well, I think uh, Erdogan is on a uh, major attempt to assert his uh, dominance in the Middle East. But he, he thought of uh, using the, the Turkish minorities that exist in, the, uh, in Asia, and, uh, and he's uh, promoting a kind of neo-Ottomanism that included incorporating parts of Syria and devastating the Kurdish populations there in order to expand the influence, its political influence. And I, I think this is a very big factor. It's also very clear that Erdogan has in, uh, installed a police state in Turkey, and and he has overestimated his own influence in the region uh, very dramatically. And in particular, I think his confrontation with Russia has led to a major losses for the Turkish economy. Uh, several million Russian tourists visit Turkey each year. Turkish contract is operated in Russia, Turkish agricultural exports, all of these have been adversely affected in addition to the uh, effort to uh, exacerbate the conflict with the Kurds has certainly also been a drain on a staggering economy. So I think he overestimated his resources, underestimated his adversaries, and certainly has undermined any pretext that Turkey represents some kind of moderate Islamic democracy. Does this signal the end of Erdogan, or has he got the military on his side? No, it doesn't, because Erdogan has a stranglehold on the uh, major uh, state apparatus, police. He's purged the judiciary, he's purged the press, and uh, he has control over the... Uh, political apparatus, and the uh, opposition is divided, and uh, his use of force and violence and jailing of hundreds of dissidents, professors, journalists, and other critics has uh, created a kind of police state which governs and uh, organizes whatever electoral processes are still uh, operative. What about the Kurds? They've long wanted a Kurdish state. Is that possible in the near future? I think the Turkish state is an, uh, a work in progress. It's not something which we will see in the next few years. The Turkish government has sent the army into most of the, Turk the Kurdish uh, regions of the country and so far has been able to contain their military arms, and he's trying to limit or outlaw its uh, political electoral expression. However, the advances of the Syrian Kurds certainly creates a powerful uh, ally for the um, 
Kurds in Turkey. And so we have a situation where the Kurds have established autonomy in Iraq. They've established regions in Syria. And uh, it may be possible for them to speak of uh, parallel uh, Kurdish states around the uh, Kurdish uh, regions in Turkey, and, and that at least provides a continuing basis of support independently of what the Turks do in their military operations inside of Turkey. Russia is supporting the Kurds in Syria. I don't think they have much influence or involvement in Iraq. Uh, and that is largely a, a protectorate of the U.S. The uh, Kurds in Iraq, Barzani represents the most conservative pro-imperial group of Kurds. And then the, uh, the PKK, the Kurds in uh, Turkey, represent an independent radical alternative. So we have different Kurdish expressions, some uh, quite conservative, some are radical and others which are essentially moving toward the national goals and that's, that includes the Kurds in Syria. So I, I think we can't amalgamate them all. I, I think the close relationships between the Kurds in Syria and the Kurds in Turkey is definitely a factor. Is Russia in Syria for the long haul? I think so. It's hard to tell what's going on with these uh, ceasefire negotiations. I'm studying them. I'm looking at them. It's hard to see how much credence the uh, Russians are giving to carry the Secretary of State, uh, Foreign Policy uh, Chief, in, in these negotiations. Washington refuses to accept the uh, Bashar Assad as, as a transitional government toward an electoral determination of uh, who should govern Syria. And that's a big problem because the Russians are not willing to abandon Bashar Assad as they abandoned Gaddafi in Libya and the country fell apart and it became a nest for terrorists uh, around the whole region. So I think the Russians are very concerned about a stable transitional government which can abide by international rules. And I, I don't think Washington is playing with the same set of assumptions. I think Washington is interested in, in satisfying its uh, political needs to isolate Iran, isolate Russia, and uh, establish... Uh, a kind of a puppet government in that region. And, and so it's hard to imagine any lasting ceasefire, particularly since many of the uh, Western-backed groups are not moderates but extremists, and, and they are not likely to abide by any electoral decisions. They'll claim they're not fair, they're frauds, or that there was this, this or that kind of manipulation, even if international observers vouch for the elections. What about the House of Saud? Where do they stand now? Well, they are becoming active even as they have less credibility. The massacre and butchering of the Yemen, uh, military bombing of hospitals, schools, and any uh, civilian 
infrastructure has certainly discredited them among any uh, uh, independent observers. I think Saudi Arabia is, with Israel, the two most reactionary countries and, and destabilizing the Middle East. And, and I think the Saudis have dependence on the West to protect them because they're, they're an absolutist monarchy that lacks any legitimacy in their country and has certainly no legitimacy among any uh, democratic forces in the Middle East. And they have been constantly intervening, including their involvement in the 9-11 terror bombing in the United States. So it's hard for any country to openly embrace Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, without external support, would certainly experience a change of government. You've been researching ISIS or ISIS. What have you found? I found that ISIS is main conduit for activities in Syria that come from two sources. One is uh, huge inflows from Turkey, and that includes oil sales through the Turkish region, and uh, it, it includes uh, thousands and thousands of uh, overseas uh, right-wing extremists flowing through Turkey. It includes, on the other hand, an enormous amount of funding from Saudi Arabia and inflows from Jordan across the border. So I think that one has to say that uh, the external forces in the Middle East, particularly Turkey and Saudi Arabia, have been uh, main organizers and promoters of the uh, ISIS terrorists. Uh, Many of them uh, came out of Iraq originally and uh, worked with Muslim extremists in Syria. But they have been greatly augmented by uh, overseas terrorists from Chechnya in Russia and Dagestan and uh, and even you guys from uh, China. And they include uh, many volunteers from Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, etc. There's a whole conglomerate of international terrorism that has uh, focused on Syria, and and certainly they are are flowing from Europe and even from the United States. And I I think this is a uh, problem which will have ramifications in in these countries because many of these uh, terrorists go back to Europe after a, a brief period of fighting, especially now that the budgets of the ISIS command have uh, been depleted because the Russians have uh, attacked their uh, oil uh, shipments and and pipelines. So I I think the blowback will be that these terrorists returning to their countries will certainly begin to uh, put bombs in uh, public places like they did in Paris and, and, and certainly uh, are planning new, new kinds of uh, incidents. Is the genesis for this group and other groups the attempt by the US to control the Middle East, or do we need to look somewhere else? There's a long history of the US collaborating with Islamic extremists in uh, Afghanistan for beginnings where they recruited and uh, put into combat through the CIA in Saudi Arabia tens of thousands of of, uh, 
Islamic extremists, and then including uh, bin Laden, and then, of course, their uh, support for Islamic terrorists in Saudi Arabia, and then their support for the terrorists in Libya against Gaddafi. Uh, these have been major points at which the U.S. has recruited and organized terrorist activities, and these forces have in turn taken on their own uh, independent activities, some of it independent, some of it continuing under U.S. Uh, financing and backing. So it's hard to separate where the U.S. opposes terrorism and where they support it. They may be doing both in supporting the, the terrorists in some contexts and opposing them in others. We're coming to the end of eight years of Obama. How are you going to assess that in terms of the mess in the Middle East? Well, Obama has probably been one of the bloodiest presidents we've had. He's been involved in seven wars, including Libya and including Iraq, Afghanistan. He's been involved in the, in the Ukraine. He's been involved in Syria. He's been involved in, uh, in fomenting conflicts between Israel and uh, Lebanon. So he has been a, a very much a militarist president, and he's been largely responsible for the trillion-dollar bailout of Wall Street, which has had a tremendously negative effect on the electorate in the United States today. It's no surprise that uh, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, has mounted a challenge against Hillary Clinton, who has identified with uh, Obama's Wall Street backing. It is also not surprising that Trump is, is uh, uh, thumping the uh, Republicans and uh, declaring himself a uh, an independent uh, protectionist president. So globalization and global wars have uh, 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 led to a kind of uh, electoral revolt in the United States among uh, nationalist racists on the right and from uh, social democrats on the left. So Obama's legacy is essentially one of uh, negativity as far as the American political process goes. He, his, his demise has led to a uh, severe electoral polarization in the United States. At least that's the way it's unfolding this election year. Is there a choice of the ones that are standing? It's hard to say because Bernie Sanders, the, the social democrat, is running in the Democratic primaries. And, and if his history is any indicator, he, he may end up endorsing Hillary Clinton if he, if he loses the uh, primaries. On the other hand, it looks to me as if Trump will win in the Republican elections, and so we'll have two right-wing candidates, a, a cold warrior, pro-Zionist Democrat, and a uh, anti-immigrant uh, protectionist Republican. Not much of a choice. Not much of a choice. As of now, uh, they're raising fundamental issues. I, I don't know if you know that Trump denounced the Republicans for uh, uh, 
President Bush for supporting the Iraq war, launching the Iraq war, and he's made statements that uh, he has no problem of uh, working with Cuba and uh, opening relations with Russia and ending sanctions. So he, he's a very different maverick candidate that is all over the political spectrum. You have his anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim pro-torture declarations, and then you have these other positions that he takes, which are much more uh, on the coexistence side. So it's a sui generis kind of uh, situation with Trump. Can you talk for a few minutes about the glorification of the Supreme Court judge, Antonin Scalia? That is the typical puff stuff by the U.S. Scalia was a very reactionary anti women's rights, anti-gay rights, anti uh, any progressive social legislation. Uh, he was a bully and very obnoxious to the female members of the Supreme Court. Uh, now they put a halo around him as if he was some great legal scholar, and uh, a, they call him a conservative, though he was a very disruptive and reactionary in the sense of trying to reverse... Uh, the march of uh, major historical changes that were underway because of uh, vast popular support. And uh, the fact that in several cases he failed is a positive step. And by passing the scene, he at least provides some opportunities for uh, unions and other groups uh, to have their cases considered with more care and consideration. So I think Scalia's demise is a a very positive thing from the point of view of advancing social and human rights in the United States. What's the chance of getting someone decent in his place? Well, that depends. The the Congress is run by right-wing Republicans who claim they're going to block any appointments Obama insists that he's going ahead with uh, uh, some appointments. It depends on uh, how much this uh, gridlock continues. It may, uh, they may not appoint uh, a judge, in which case there'll be a four to four deadlock. And uh, and perhaps in in the face of that, it's better than having a, a five to four reactionary court. Just for the last moment, James, the economy in the United States, how's it going? Well, the U.S. economy is stagnating and staggering along at between 1.5% and 2.5%. Uh, the malice uh, the, the in the U.S. is not seen in growth rates. It's seen in the vast inequalities, the growth of job insecurity, temporary employment, enormous uh, household debts, uh, students heavily indebted because of the astronomical costs of tuition. The uh, appearance of uh, some economic recovery is very deceptive. Much more revealing is the uh, electoral behavior of the United States, which is anti those who supported wars and supported the bailout of Wall Street and uh, the concentration of wealth. So you have two realities. A a capitalist recovery which has uh, prejudiced the vast majority of middle class and working class and an electoral scene which is tumultuous 
and full of uh, rancor. Thank you so much, and I'm glad you had a holiday. Thank you very much, Jen, and I look forward to talking with you again next month. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus. And that's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, so it's bye for now, and stand by for Done By Law.